Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Our passage this morning is 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You can be seated. Do, do your thoughts settle on your Savior? Do your thoughts settle on God? Or do they flit about? You give God a fleeting thought here and there, perhaps? Do your thoughts settle and spin around and taste and enjoy God? Charles Spurgeon, always dangerous to quote in sermons because it will be the best part of the sermon, wrote this. He said, The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of God. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, Behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science... Finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with the solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and nothing and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. Lives are packed. Lives are packed with, with good things, with children, with friends, with basketball tournaments, with telephones, with internet articles, with scripture reading, with, with brushing your teeth, with you know personal hygiene. With, I mean, just li- think of the things you do in one day. Does your mind settle on God, on the contemplation of God? When you meditate on the mercy of God through his son, Jesus Christ, do you ever break out into praise? Do you ever spontaneously sing like Maggie does all day long? Esther's. That's Esther. 
spontaneously joyful. But in the contemplation of God, do you ever break out into to song? Does the contemplation of God cause the joy of your heart to overflow as tears from your eyes? When you contemplate what the Apostle Paul wrote in verse 15, as it applies to you and every other believer in Jesus Christ, do you, do you, uh, do you rejoice? Do you irresistibly break into rejoicing? It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul's been giving Pastor Timothy very practical commands, instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, and instructing him on the use of the law and bringing conviction to to, uh, sinners. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, but for a moment, but for this moment, he, he turns to his own personal apprehension of the mercy of God. And in this one verse, verse 17, Paul pauses and bursts out with a doxology. You think in his writing of this letter, he probably wrote this and then sang a few hymns. And then went on to chapter 2, went on with the rest of his letter. Doxology is the word I would use for this. Doxology is the mashing of two Greek words together, doxa and logos. So it could just be explained as glory word or glory speaking. Speaking forth glory. The Apostle Paul acknowledges and verbally brings attention to the glorious God. Is this a part, is this a part of your daily experience? Is the joy of the Lord, the comprehension of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, a part of your daily wonder? Is it a part of your daily prayer? Is it a part of your speech? Do you sing praises to God? Or is it that our minds are so fixed on the things of this world that we seldom break forth in spontaneous praise? We seldom meditate on the glory of the gracious God. We infrequently honor God in the way his glory deserves. One thing I often challenge myself with and bring as a challenge to uh, prayer meetings is this. Begin with the praise of God. Begin with praise. It's a challenge to myself and to, and to those at the prayer meeting every time I mention it. We're so prone in our prayers to immediately launch into our petitions, right? Our needs, our desires that... Uh, and so we, we do that instead of acknowledging the one into whose presence we are entering at that moment to make those petitions, A corporate worship forces us to do so. And for that reason, regularly attending corporate worship, assuming it is focused on the glory of God and not on the the glory of some little man's kingdom, being there is essential. 
but what of the other moments of your week with your family, in the presence of those you work with, with your friends, with strangers, in the presence of the influential that you might be around this week, in the presence of the weak and sick? Do you speak with wonder about the glory of your Creator? Do your children see you and hear you glorifying and enjoying God? Shamefully, mine do not hear enough of that. The Apostle Paul, certainly in these letters he writes to the churches, often comes out with these interjections, these doxologies. Um, I have to believe his, his speech as he traveled about the world suffering included even more doxologies than what we have written here. But here's what we have written. Listen to these. Romans one twenty five. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. He ends that intense statement with this, God is glorious. Romans 9.5, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Galatians 1, 3 through 5, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Ephesians three twenty one. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Philippians 4.20, now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Timothy 6.16, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Those are all the times that the Apostle Paul, as he contemplates the works of God, breaks out into song, into doxology. All of those examples, including... Uh, the one in First Timothy have the same elements. God is the focus. There's an attribution of praise. There's the eternal duration of that praise. And then there's that concluding amen. Focus on God, attribution of praise, eternal duration of that praise, and a concluding amen. As for the, for the amen, let me take that up first. We understand that when we add an an amen to somebody's prayer, and we add an amen to um, after somebody's statement, we are affirming its truth, right? We're affirming what was said. We're, we're adding our amen. But there's more to it than that. Sproul makes this point. He says the expression amen is not simply an acknowledgement of personal agreement with what has been stated. It is an expression of willingness to submit to the implications of that word. To indeed be bound by it as if the word of God would put ropes around us, not to strangle us, but to hold us firmly in place. So to add an amen to a statement is to say, yes, that is true, but it's also to say, 
I am happy to be bound by that truth. I bind myself under that truth. It is to say I believe that and will then live accordingly. It is for the truth and reality of God to move from the head down to the heart and out to the hands. Right? Moving, and so, so, so don't be so quick to amen. You're taking an oath when you say an amen. You're binding yourself to what was spoken. Oh, be, be, say lots of amens, but say them seriously. Right? So moving in reverse direction, we see the duration of the reality of the truth spoken forever and ever. These doxologies have that statement, forevermore, forever and ever. The doxologies from Paul remind us of one of the central truths of Scripture, one, of, one that we read, uh, we read in last Sunday's evening service um, from 1 Samuel 15. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Right? He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The perfect character, the perfect glory, the perfect power, the, the perfect perfection of God is forever fixed and unchangeable. God will always be the same in his essence, in his attributes, in his plans. He does not change. He does not lie. And all that he determines to do will inevitably and always come to pass. Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Amen? Now I may have just tricked you. If you said amen, you were not just assenting to the truth of that statement, you were also affirming now that you would live by the truth of what Job just said. All that plays out in your life, therefore, has a purpose from God. Your prosperity, your poverty, your suffering, your struggles... Your victories, all those defeats, your healings, your stubbed toe, your broken down car, your marriage, your moves across the country, your membership at this church. All things are part of God's purpose. And knowing that should have what effect on us? A little less anxiety. A little more hope. A little less grumbling and complaining. A little more delight in God's fatherly discipline. A little less, you know, living to enact our purposes. And a little more acknowledgement of the glorious purpose of God. The unchangeable and sovereign God has purposed everything in his providence. Do you live like that is true? The Apostle Paul calls out these four particular attributes of God in his doxology. First Timothy chapter 1, he says, God is the eternal king. 
God is immortal. God is invisible. And God is the only God. Now, take a moment sometime this week and just, you know, like you would put a cough drop in your mouth and roll it around in there, you know, to soothe your throat. Put these these words in your mind and, and roll them about so that they soothe your soul. So first, just as we read in, in, in we read in, in Jeremiah, this statement was made. God reigns as a sovereign king eternally, past, present, and future. Jeremiah ten ten. But the word but the Lord is the true God, He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Psalm ten sixteen says, The Lord is a king forever and ever. Psalm 29, 10 says, The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. Revelation nineteen sixteen says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. As the king, therefore... He has authority, as would an earthly king over the realm that he rules. Where does God's kingdom extend? Psalm 24 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Our triune God has authority over every bit of his creation which is everything that is seen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. He's the king. Over the, over the distant, newly formed star, Hundreds of thousands of light years away, God has authority as king. Over the one-celled amoeba, God has authority as king. Over the deepest parts of the earth, God has authority as king. Over the winds that blow on the planet Mars, God has authority as king. Over the nations of the earth that are vainly raging, God has authority as king. And over his church, God has authority as king. Over you and your household, God has authority as king. God has all authority. He is a king. Rather, he is the king. And he is that eternally. His kingdom will know no end. Now, now, brothers and sisters, there should be great comfort in this, Right? But not simply comfort. There should be great confidence. There should be great. We, we like to co- talk about comfort because we're, we're all just, as Dr. Hollywood put, psychologized. And so we need, you know, we need to feel good about ourselves. We always talk about comfort, comfort, comfort. But, but think about confidence. Confidence is much different, isn't it? God is a king. He is king over all, and there should be great confidence in this. You go about raising your children. You go about fighting your temptations. You go about doing what you can to see abortion, and you you go about applying to the, the gospel to hard hearts, and you go about loving your spouse and living and dying 
with an almighty eternal king laying it all out. Superintending it all. And on top of that, that almighty eternal king loves you. And takes care of you. And will never leave you or forsake you. It's one thing for there to be a sovereign king directing things. It's quite another to have a sovereign king who loves you doing that directing. We love because he first loved us. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. And remember that this veil of tears that we live in now is going to be superseded by the new heaven and the new earth. There we will live in God's kingdom and God himself present. And that eternal Sabbath in that redeemed world will far surpass the greatest joys in the here and now. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man. All that. God is prepared for those who love him. Second, God is immortal or imperishable or undecaying, this word can mean. He is there. He has always been there. He will always be there. If you turn later into 1 Timothy we read that this quality is something that alone belongs to God. It alone belongs to God by nature. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Now we have... We will have an an immortal or imperishable body after our resurrection. The same word is used in 1 Corinthians 15 in describing our body as is used of God in this passage. The difference is that we do not have an imperishable body by nature. We receive it as a gift from God. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. God has never, ever been prone to decay. He is immortal, everlasting, imperishable, undecaying. We are so surrounded by decay and the perishing that it's hard for us to conceive of God in this respect. Everything Everything they tell us is in a process, is progressing, is evolving, is learning, is becoming. Not so God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Third, God is invisible or unseen. As the Apostle John says, no one has seen God at any time. And yet, we know that the Son of God is visible. The Apostle Paul writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The apostles saw him in all of those Old Testament appearances of God. Those are, in fact, appearances of the one who is the image of the invisible God. Again, Paul says, 
it later in Timothy, God is the one whom no man has seen or can see. Now, this from, I borrowed from myself from a sermon on Colossians 1.15, where it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in the Gospel of John, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. And then these passages in 1 Timothy. The, teach, the scriptures teach us what about God? That he is a spirit. And that we can't see him. But Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And flesh we certainly can't see. Uh, that's why the first chapter of John, which teaches us that the word took on flesh, says that no one has seen God and Jesus has explained him. Jesus is deity incarnate, so he is the image of the invisible God. That is precisely why Jesus said to Philip, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the visible representation of the spiritual and invisible God. Now, what are, we, what are we to make of all those Old Testament passages where it says that the people saw God? Jacob wrestles with God and then says, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. In Exodus, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, 70 elders of Israel are invited to have a meal with God, and it says they saw the God of Israel. And under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. Manoah, the father of Samson, says to his wife after speaking with the one whose name is wonderful, we will surely die for we have seen God. Inspired word of God has just taught us that these people saw God and that no one sees God at any time. There are many other examples. How do we make sense of it? Well, one way to think of it is that God's essence will never be seen by us but that God shows something of his glory to us. Many of the passages where it seems God is appearing corporally is really the appearance of his glory. The Shekinah glory falling upon the new temple, for example. What is seen is his glory, not some sort of form, because as we've learned, God is invisible. Another way these passages are explained is that the language is an accommodation to our limited understanding. Scripture is always doing that, accommodating so we can understand. It speaks in such a way that we will begin to understand what God is doing. These are referred to as anthropomorphisms. God is said to have eyes and arms and body parts so that we can have some sense of what's going on. Another way, and perhaps the best way, to think of these instances is to understand them as pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus Christ himself. He is the one who manifests God, and he was given this work, this work to manifest the glory of God by the Father in these few instances before he took on flesh eternally. He did in shadow what he would do in reality when he took on flesh in the incarnation. This is what Jesus is. He is the image of the invisible God. Yet this attribute of Jesus Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God, becomes explicit when he comes to live among us and takes on the flesh of a man. Remember, Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. To look on Jesus is to be given an explanation, a manifestation, a visible representation, an image of God. What 
I mean, what incredible blessings in this, right? To see and to be able to look upon God himself, to see that which is invisible, to see that which is spirit. And then finally in our passage, Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that God is the only God. As for this point, I'm just going to close by reading a portion of Isaiah 45. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it in a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from of old. Who has long since declared it? It is not I, the Lord. Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. God declares that he is the only God. God declares that the idols of the nations are worthless. They are vanity. They are nothing. But those who worship them will become like them. They'll become worthless. They'll become vain. We worship the one true living God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you have shown yourself to us through the word and by the illumination of your spirit. Oh God, I pray that we would sing your praises. Lord, I pray that we would be ashamed of how how our mouths have been silent, how we have not had doxologies bursting forth from us at all times because, Father, you are glorious. You are the eternal king, immortal, invisible, the only God. And so, Father, I pray that we would be bursting with song, bursting with praise, bursting with words that are appropriate to the immensity of your astonishing power and glory. We praise you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.